You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Alt-Ac. This shorthand for alternative academic career paths has become a pretty familiar, if somewhat awkward, rubric for jobs beyond and surrounding the faculty tenure track. As a term encountered and deployed with increasing frequency by graduate students, graduate advisors, and anyone on the 21st century job market for humanities PhDs, there is reason to be critical of the particular alternative relation that the term alt-ac substantiates the supposed hierarchy of value imagined among the jobs available to the freshly minted PhD. I'm Pat Crane, a professor of English at NYU and an advisor to a number of PhDs. At this year's C19 conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I convened a group of scholars invested in reframing this conversation by thinking of the increasingly scarce tenure-track professor job as only one among many lateral paths to a fulfilling work life. As humanities PhDs themselves, each of our contributors, Jane Greenway Carr, Sarah Ann Carter, Paul Erickson, and David Weimer, established careers by translating their skills to different professional situations. In this podcast, they discuss the dimensions of that translational work emphasizing the wisdom of taking a broader approach to the outcomes of doctoral training, even for those who do land on the tenure track. In our first segment, Jane Greenway Carr, opinion editor and producer for CNN Digital, talks about how the practices, skills, and tools of writing and research that PhDs already have can be mobilized to reach a broader audience, And she offers tips for pitching ideas and adapting to the amped-up timeline of journalism. The things that you just do when you're an academic, when you go into other situations, they have skill names and people will pay you for them and you need to learn what those are and put them on your resume and just be aware of, of what those things are, uh, particularly if you want to work in journalism, nonprofits, or even start something yourself if you want to be an entrepreneur. Um, so from New America, I worked with my current team at CNN Opinion on several long-term projects. Uh, and so when it was time for them to bring on a new editor, they thought of me. I will also say with a word to imposter syndrome, uh, the job description they were working with at that time called for 10 years of hard journalism experience. And as much as it was a life-changing experience to be at NYU with Pat and many others. I wasn't doing hard journalism. Uh, so you, if you can do the job and you can demonstrate that you can do the job, you should put yourself out there. If you do want to write for a broader audience, imagine who they are. Um, think about the who, the why, and the what. Uh, and I'll focus on the why because I think it's the most on point for our conversation. Uh, your work matters and people should know why. Uh, you get to be a writer in a way that complements your academic projects. Uh, it 
And fundamentally, I think now more than ever, it's critical to remember that we, uh, as scholars, are storytellers who understand narrative and why it matters in multiple registers. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, I always start with this as well. Editors want to meet you if you want to meet them. And they do speak a different language. They speak a language that means write me back immediately. They speak a language that means you know, I'm going to ask you, so what? And it's not an insult. They speak a language that means I'm going to fact check you. And it doesn't mean I don't know what you're talking. I don't think you know what you're talking about. It means that I do. I just want you to tell me how I can make it understood. Um, I, I spoke to finding heroes. Uh, and this is an important one, incorporating engagement and cultivation of general readership activity into your daily, weekly, and monthly routine. This can mean sending three tweets every day. This can mean taking 20 minutes in addition to your regular writing routine to jot down op-ed ideas that you want to have at the ready when they become situationally relevant. Uh, this can mean different things to different people, uh, but I think it's important to plan this into uh, the routine of how you practice who you are uh, as an academic. And decide, this is an important one too, and it's very individualized, Decide where and how to promote yourself and your work in this broader context. And noting this, and this goes for grad students and senior scholars, the risks and rewards and reevaluating them as you go. Uh, it's not going to be the same for everyone. And I want to skip to this one. Uh, a word on the dark side of broader audiences. Putting yourself out there on the internet isn't always a great thing. It doesn't always have perfect consequences. And I think it's important to realize that before you do it. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're being trolled or you're finding, uh, you know, a threatening response, don't, you know, talk to your mentors about it. Talk to your editor about it. Don't feel that you're alone in it. I think that that's something that doesn't necessarily get talked about enough. Um, so I'll skip back to this, uh, and I think this is probably the most important, what to know before you pitch someone like me. Uh, you want to have stuff written already. I know that we spend a lot of time writing about what we're going to write as academics. Uh, I did it too. I still do it. It's a, it, it's a totally worthy activity. Uh, but it's good to have you know, just the gist, uh, the meat. Uh, of what you of what you want uh, before you send out any kind of query, because if someone's interested, they're going to get back to you very fast. Um, and know, have a sense before you get into it whether you are interested in pitching something off the news, something that's specific to a project that you're working on, or something that's always relevant, something that has a kind of evergreen uh, tinge to it. And I mentioned this before too, but be able to answer the so what before you're asked. I would say that as a journalist. Not both as an editor as an, and as a writer, the closest analog that I've ever come to, uh, that I've ever had to this kind of being asked, so what, is having to explain uh, at a conference cocktail party why my dissertation is interesting. I think we've all had that experience, so leverage it. Uh, you can, you do have, you do have actually uh, the tools that you need to do this. Um, and one thing that I think is also very important, particularly in the era of opinion journalism, because I think the current climate is such that we all have a lot of opinions and we all have very resonant ways of expressing them. Choose your ideas judiciously, particularly if you're pitching someone you've never worked with before. If you, it, The first thing that someone is going to do is Google you if they don't already know you. And if you don't have any kind of online presence that indicates, and this can be a Twitter thread. It doesn't have to be you know, a peer-reviewed article. Um, but if you don't have any kind of visible connection to the subject that you're writing about, the person is going to be less likely to want uh, to work with you. Um, this one is important, too. Uh, be ready to be persistent with follow-up without being a pest. I wasn't kidding. The news cycle is punishing. We all know this. There are people at this conference 
who have pitched me things that I am very interested in and have not had a chance to get back with them yet on. So that don't, you know, don't take that personally. Uh, and also just be aware, you know, and I tell this story anywhere I go like this. Uh, the first peer review article I published, I submitted in the fall of 2012, and it was published in the summer of 2015. This is a different world. It's a world that has value, and it has, it's a world that has value to your research, too, and I'll actually skip ahead um, to that. So um, this is writing journalism can be a way to further your research. If you have something, and it's, it's analogous to teaching. If you wanted to have a seminar to get the feedback of informed graduate students on an idea that you're thinking about for a book project, if you are in the throes of a book project and you want to sort out some of the thorny bits, if you have a thing that's on the cutting room floor of your book project and it's just killing you, that you can't you know, engage with that little piece of research, these are things that you can do. Um, and these examples are too you know, fine-grained to go into, uh, and I can share slides with you, but just you know, to pick one out, you know, uh, I worked in 2015 with Salamisha Tillett on an, a piece that was timed to the Oscars and the uh, John Legend common song winning best song, uh, writing about, you know, she's really interested in doing research on protest songs, and that was something that we were able to work together on. Um, so this, I'll highlight this too, because I think it's important just the tools and opportunities that these have been useful to me and uh, are useful to others that I work with. I mentioned digital presence. Uh, I know a lot of people are interested in blogging and getting relevantly personal. Opinion writing is a place where your scholarly expertise you know, and your personal experience can come together. That was true for me in the piece I wrote about Charlottesville. Um, create Twitter lists and sign up for email newsletters um, in the areas in which you're interested. If you're interested in po public policy or politics, Axios is obviously good. If you're interested in issues of race and gender, um, these are good ones. Um, and one thing that I think is really important, particularly since most of you are still you know, in a university context, um, training and mentorship for writers and outreach organizations, for editors and producers. You can bring these folks to your campus. The op-ed project is great. You can register with Women's Media Center SheSource, uh, particularly you know, if you are uh, uh, a woman. And Foreign Policy Interrupted is also a good one. Uh, and I think one that's underutilized uh, are university resources in communications and public relations. Um, the, these are the folks who, you know, whose job it is to stay on top of, you know, what the news is and how what's being produced, the knowledge that's being produced in your institution might be relevant. Um, and it's also, you know, much, much easier and quicker uh, for that person to be able to communicate with someone like me uh, in when when those situations arise. There's a there's a withholding thing when you're skilled at narrative. Don't do that in journalism. Don't bury your favorite details. Get them out there. You know. People, it's not about building to the end, it's about drawing people in and keeping them there. One of the things that, one of the metrics that I get bombarded with on a daily basis is engagement time. How long are people reading what it is that I'm putting out there? Uh, don't talk down to your audience or be insulted if your editor wants to talk through jargon or word choice. I will testify that I once spent 45 minutes trying to find out, trying to figure out the perfect comma phrase to elaborate on what intersectional meant for someone who didn't know what it meant, maybe, you know, a certain segment of the population over 50, um, not to profile at all. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was critical that the words stay, 
but it was also critical that it be explained uh, from the point of view of my editor. And so it was very important. So often those conversations will happen uh, with the editor and the writer. Uh, and so if you're ready to be engaged in them, that's really important and just as a point of translation between academic work uh, and media. And be very firm about what you have to offer. You offer context. You offer your research. You offer a long view. You offer intellectual flexibility. And you offer the power of being a storyteller. So let that carry the weight of your research you don't have to, you know, that's what links are for. You don't have to acknowledge, you know, if some, if a scholar is critical, you can acknowledge that scholar, but, you know, it's really about your voice. And there aren't a lot of situations, at least I found in academia, uh, where that is really the first rule of thumb. Um, and I love this quote, and I stole it shamelessly uh, from Norton's Tumblr uh, by their executive editor. A book should not be one's first and only attempt to address the public. And I think that's really what I live by. I think it's really important. If an editor or producer happens to reach out to you because they found you online and they're looking for someone to, who does a certain thing and you know someone who does that thing, this is a form of mentorship that I think is undersold. If you, if someone contacts you and you have the busiest week of your life and you can't do it or it's really not your thing and you know a grad student whose thing it is, make that connection because you're gonna, you're gonna gain a friend and the editor or producer you're helping out and you're gonna pay it forward. Um, so for those of you who are thinking about um, mentorship, that's a really important thing. Um, one thing, don't be surprised if your edits read like teacher's comments. Your conclusion is your thesis is the first cousin to you buried the lead. Just mm -hmm. get used to it. Um, and as I said, build up a store of pitches uh, that you know you want to write in an ideal world. Don't focus on the perfect angle, but really the thing that you want to come across. And you'll know when the thing in the news happens or the thing in culture happens um, that offers you the opportunity uh, to do that. Jane reminds us that humanities PhDs are already storytellers, providers, as we now say, of content. In our next segment, Sarah Ann Carter tells stories through material culture objects in her work as curator and director of research of the Chipstone Foundation in Milwaukee and as the Chipstone Fellow in Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Questioning both the alt and the ack of alt-ack, Sarah talks about the widely diverse vocations in and out of the academy that share question-driven methods, research skills, and both personal and public missions and outcomes. I'm very happy to be here on this ALTAC panel to talk about some of the many and varied ways all of us who have pursued advanced degrees in the humanities can think about how to make a really meaningful contribution with the skills that we've honed. But as Pat's already mentioned, and as Jane alluded to, I, I also really struggle with this whole alt-ac concept. And I just want to briefly um, say why. I have a problem with both the alt part and, part, and frankly, with the ac part, too. Um, it suggests, first of all, that there's some sort of like monolithic, ideal academic career right, that exists. And, and we know that, of course, there isn't. Um, and it also suggests that by pursuing a whole range of careers that are qualitatively very different from each other, they're really different opportunities and paths, we're doing something that's somehow alternative or subversive to this um, mythical ACPAC path. And having dinner with um, a good friend last night who writes about um, Islamic literature saying it's sort of like when he's asked to teach a global world history class, right? He's like, I'm teaching the other. You know, and we all know that's a problem in the courses in which we um, maybe have taught in the past or have taught, but we can also apply that to the way we think about, um, the way we talk about the jobs that we all pursue. Um, 
And then, of course, it's in a critique of Pat who organized this panel. That's just a critique of the discourse that surrounds the careers that we've all chosen. And so rather than Alt-Ac, I'd like to think of the diverse careers that we're talking about today as question-driven, careers that are about asking and answering different kinds of questions, careers that are focused on different kinds of research skills that we also all have, and also thinking about careers that are quite explicitly mission-driven, whether that's a personal intellectual mission that we may have or connecting to the mission of an organization that we may work with, and hopefully those things will be in line. And thinking about you know, question-driven, research-focused, and mission-driven endeavors um, certainly can be the way we think about traditional academic careers, but we know they aren't always the way we think about those careers. So I'd like us just to think about you know, questions and research and mission as key to um, what I want to talk about today. So first of all, Pat asked me to talk briefly about my own background and the kinds of collaborative work I do at the Chipstone Foundation, shown here. And I also want to share some of the strategies that have helped me to maintain and nurture my intellectual soul and my ambition through the work that I do. So I should start off by saying I've always been interested in museum work. And by always, I mean I was you know, volunteering in museums when I was 13. Right? This is something I did throughout high school, throughout college. I was pursuing lots of different kinds of museum internships. And I discovered this field called material culture when I was an undergraduate at Harvard. And I was able to write you know, a pretty quirky senior thesis about actually the history of 19th century doll funerals. You know, a project that got me into all of these weird funeral museums and archives. And it was pretty interesting. And I was able to present a paper on that. And I was actually able to publish that paper. And that was the first time I was like, well, wait, wait a minute. Maybe there is actually this academic path, too, that I could think about, in addition, as opposed to this um, museum path. And so from there, you know, I went to Winchester, where I studied objects for two years, which in many ways is analogous to someone who wants to get a PhD focusing on a foreign language. And they're thinking about, um, well, I really have to master Arabic, or I really have to master Chinese before I go and get a PhD in this language. Um, for me, that was the study of objects, and that was learning object connoisseurship. And then going on to Harvard for my PhD in American Studies, sort of armed with that knowledge and that way of thinking about the sources that would be central to my work. When I was at Harvard, I found I also actually really liked teaching, something I, wasn't, I didn't know I was going to really enjoy doing. And I found as many creative ways as I could to keep researching objects and thinking with and through objects. So doing lots of work in archives, in various museums. Um, and the project that grew out of that was actually a project about histories of learning from and through objects. So thinking about how do we get information from material things. A project that's very relevant to me as a museum curator, but also something that I'm very intellectually interested in as someone who writes and thinks about those questions. So after I graduated from Harvard, um, I had a three-year halftime job in the history and literature program, which was a great way to continue to teach students, but also to have plenty of time to try to figure out what is it that I want to do. And of course, you know, applied for lots of different jobs, but at the same time, I was doing a whole range of projects. So for example, I wrote the Centennial History for the Boston Children's Museum, which was a contract project. Um, I worked on the Tangible Things Project, which was initially a large exhibition project, but then it also became a book project. It also became a um, edX course that continues to this day um, in its third iteration. And doing that, that project, I, I learned a lot of project management skills, um, trying to navigate um, some pretty complicated bureaucracy at lots of different museums, 
I thought a lot about different ways of conveying information through video, through writing, through exhibit labels, through the experience of walking through an exhibition. And all of those lessons were really quite interesting to me. And they also gave me the opportunity to have all of these different um, tangible outcomes that I could share with people outside of academia, outside of traditional academia as well, right? So yes, I continued to publish and write articles. And yes, I worked on my book project, but I was also engaging in other ways too. And all of those ways were also, you know, focused on asking questions, focused on research, and really very much mission-driven in terms of what we wanted those projects to accomplish, what I wanted the work I was doing to accomplish. And those projects really helped to elevate my profile in the field. It helped me meet a lot of different kinds of people. And that's how I got the job that I currently have at the Chipstone Foundation. You know, that was a position that I um, got through someone's, you know, suggesting, oh, this could be a great opportunity for you, starting conversations that way. So, and I, and I should say, I don't think that would have been possible for me if I hadn't done some of those projects in addition to all of the work that I was doing working on my book project. So just briefly, a few strategies that I have tried to employ through doing all of these different kinds of projects over the past five years to really maintain my own academic um, identity and profile throughout all of this has been that for all of these projects, we have multiple outcomes. For all of these projects, we think hard about how it can be not just an exhibit, but a publication, a video, a program, a lecture, um, as many things as possible. Because we want to make sure that we are thinking creatively about how we use our resources. And I think, I mean, the most important resource I often think about is, you know, the time I have every day to work on these projects and the time my colleagues have. So how can we creatively um, create projects that have all of these outcomes? I also, um, when I teach courses, you know, I think hard about how that course could be leveraged into another kind of project. For example, the course I taught last semester at Madison might be my second book project about histories of object-based learning from the Renaissance to the present. Or um, we think hard about how we can bring students in in creative ways in all of our projects. I also make my research goals really public with all of my colleagues. Um, so research is not something that I do secretly in the dead of night. Um, everyone I work with knows the kinds of projects that I'm working on, the questions that interest me, the things I would love to have time to do, um, because that's part of my identity as someone working as the Career Director of Research at this foundation, and that's important to me that I can share that. And that's also how I get those things done, because I talk about them a lot, and I share them, so I'm not keeping it a secret. And in the same vein, that helps me find collaborators. We're always looking for projects to collaborate on, um, we are always looking for collaborators. If you have an interesting material culture project, come talk to me. Um, we have worked with I mean, colleagues here on think tank projects, on teaching collaborations, on exhibitions, on videos. Um, you know, come, come talk to me and we can brainstorm about what might be possible. I also find it very helpful to actually build communities around the work I do. For example, I have a writing group in Milwaukee of these six amazing uh, women. They're, they just all happen to be women who have PhDs and loosely aligned fields. And you know, we get together every couple of weeks. We read each other's work. We support each other. We set deadlines for each other. And through this book, we've, through this uh, group, I think we now have, um, we have four books that will be coming out in the next couple of years, which is pretty cool. Um, and that's been a great motivator for me. Um, I also have affiliations in several different universities in Milwaukee, which helps me too. 
um, because that helps me have, feel like I have colleagues, even though I'm working in a small organization. Um, I also find it helpful to set small goals for myself. So a lot of the writing I've been doing for the past few years has been shorter writing. I mean, yes, I've finished my book, which will be out this summer, but I also have been working on shorter pieces that I know I can get done you know, in X amount of time and then have sort of that gratification of seeing it appear in the world. And because I'm not on a tenure track, I can think about what is the best audience to receive this. Actually, should I really be making a video here? Would this be better as an exhibition? Would this be better as part of our podcast program? How should I be sharing this? And that's very freeing, and it helps me also think about why the work I do hopefully matters. Why I think it matters, that's why I do it. Who do I want to read this work? What kind of an impact do I want it to have? And so finally, in all of these ways, I think really hard about how all of the work that we do really is very, um, it's question-oriented, it's very research-focused, and it's mission-driven, both my personal mission and the mission of my larger organization. Many academic skills translate seamlessly to other settings, but the next speaker, Paul Erickson, emphasizes some of the mindset and identity adjustments they can also demand. Who you are, he reminds us, is different from what you do. As Program Director for Humanities, Arts and Culture, and American Institutions at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Paul shares ideas for building skills that your graduate education might have scanted, from collaborating with colleagues to managing a team and reading a budget. We're supposed to talk about uh, humanities careers beyond the academy. Uh, I work now at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which we call the academy, so um, uh, I should probably no longer be on this panel. Um, uh, so I'm going to talk uh, it, it, sort of less about writing and less about um, the actual jobs that I've had, uh, and more about some of the mindset shifts that are required to go from um, sort of an academic uh, humanities background into a uh, non-academic uh, track job, um, and then just sort of a bullet list of some practical things that I think are useful to do if you're thinking about trying to repackage yourself. Um, and uh, first of all, I just want to address um, what Jane said about this, this question of sort of retrospective coherence. Um, that's not a problem I have. I never wanted an academic job. When I went to graduate school, my career is pretty much the career that I wanted um, going in. And so, uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of weird to look back and think like, oh, that actually sort of makes sense. Because um, it doesn't feel like it at the time, but that's, that's kind of how it worked out. Um, and so just a couple sort of big framing things that I want, uh, want to make sure people take away from this conversation. The first is, this is not something that graduate training and the humanities in particular does a good job of, of teaching people. But the, the most important thing to remember is that who you are is different from what you do. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, we're so over-identified with our projects and with our status as scholars. Um, you know, like what you need is a job that has health insurance and that lets you pay your rent and feed your family. Um, and you can be, still be a scholar and do something else for a living. And that's sort of the most important thing that I want people to take away from this. So, um, uh, so as I said, I, I, I went to graduate school um, to get jobs like the one I have. Uh, so I don't have an alternate, alternative academic career. I have a different job and a career that I've been working on since the early 1990s. And so I would think uh, one thing I would encourage you to all think about is like you already have careers. A career is not something that starts when you finish graduate school. You are in careers now uh, preparing for the next thing in that career. Um, it's not There's not like this separate, separate phase of your life that's a career. So... Um, 
I went to the University of Chicago for college, uh, moved to New York uh, after I graduated, worked in publishing for six months, hated it, um, uh, got a job at the Social Science Research Council, which is uh, an academic nonprofit. Um, that was in 1993. That's the last job that I've gotten in my career that was not through a personal connection. So um, uh, people think, oh, networking's a dirty word. Bullshit. Like, this, this is your network. Um, uh, the people you meet at conferences, the people you go to graduate school with, um, take advantage of those connections. They are people who will help you get jobs. They will. Pe they are people who headhunters will call, um, and you know they can bring up your name. So um, you know, build those connections. Um, I got that job from a, a print ad in the classified section of the New York Times. That's how old I am. Um, uh, I put on a stovepipe hat and wrote on my velocity. Um, uh, uh, it was really great. So uh, the great thing about working at SSRC was that it was the place that made me understand that there were these jobs that you needed a PhD for that were kind of attached to the academic world but were in it and didn't involve teaching. And so before there, I'd heard any of anything called an alternative academic career, I knew that there were these kinds of jobs and those that was the kind of job I wanted. So that was how I wound up going to graduate school in American Studies. Um, I wanted to go, and inter go to an interdisciplinary program because I thought it would be better preparation for a wider range of things that I might wind up doing. Um, and so there were a lot of great things that that uh, program uh, taught me to do. One was um, it gave me experience doing different kinds of writing, as Jane said. Um, uh, you know, Academics like to think that they know how to do different kinds of writing. Most don't. Um, uh, it, it's a muscle. You have to use it to, to um, keep to be able to uh, do it well. So. Um, and that was one thing that that program uh, prepared me well to do. It taught me how to talk to different kinds of people. I took documentary method courses. Um, so uh, the sort of the, the broader the experience that you can get, um, uh, the better. So one thing that, um, that I, I think is really important to think about is sort of how to configure your life to let you do the things that are important to you about your academic work and also do another job. So, um, so what that makes you need to think about what the ACK, what the part of ACK is that's important. Um, so what counts as academic? Is it a job that involves teaching? Uh, is it a job that involves research? Does it have to be at a university? Um, uh, what, what parts of academic life matter, matter to you the most, and how can you configure your life to let you do those things? So when I was working in consulting, I was going to conferences on my own dime and, and presenting work, and my name tag said independent scholar, and some people looked at that funny and some people didn't. but. Um, uh, so I was able to keep doing the things that I liked to do that were important to me about academic life. Um, so there are ways you can do that, and depending on, on what the things are that mean the most to you, you know, you can find a way to teach a class uh, in the evening if teaching is the, the, the thing that means the most. So um, uh, you can combine it. Just because you have one kind of job doesn't mean that you have to stop doing all these other things. Um, but there are some really important mindset, shi mindset shifts that need to happen um, if you're going to move into a different career path. Um, uh, the biggest one is that um, you, ha you need to let go of the idea that your research and writing um, are going to be a meaningful part of how you're evaluated. And that's really hard be for people from academic backgrounds because that's all you're evaluated on. I mean, if you're working on a dissertation, that's like that's the thing. Um, and when you're working at uh, a different kind of institution, I mean, it's different for someone working at a museum or a library maybe. but. You know, my current job, nobody cares what I work on. Um, nobody cares if I publish anything. I don't think of uh, my 50 colleagues, more than two, could tell you what my scholarly work is on at all, and that's fine. Um, 
so you just have to make that adjustment of not expecting that that's going to matter um, to the people that you work for and the people who are evaluating you. Um, in a lot of jobs in, in this sort of sector, um, uh, your work is going to be more focused on fostering and enabling and supporting other people's work than on doing your own. Um, so that's something you have to prepare yourself for and, and be comfortable with. Um, the work's going to be much more collaborative than academic work. You're going to go to a lot more meetings. Um, being a superstar individual contributor is not going to necessarily be something that's valued as much. Um, uh, you know, academic training does not really prepare you to be a good colleague in an organization, um, is the polite way of putting this. Um, uh, so, um, you know, my, my graduate does, department wasn't like this, but I know a lot of departments are, where there's like, you know, competition for attention from, from your advisor between multiple people who are working for them. And, you know, it's sort of like, well, if I get that attention, that means someone else doesn't. And so that moves me ahead. And like, like if you are someone if you're doing that in an organization where you're working with people, like you will be universally disliked. Um, uh, and it can maybe work for a while, but it won't work in the long term, and you will have alienated everyone you work with, and those are the people that you need to go to bat for you when you want to look for another job. So um, just like, don't be like that. Um, um, so those are some sort of the big mindset shifts. I'm just going to go through some, some nuts and bolts things that I think people could do. Um, so if you're still doing coursework or um, have a chance to um, uh, sort of expand the coursework that you're doing, um, do a certificate or an MA in another field at your university. So the, the more breadth you have, the better. Um, nobody's ever complained that someone with a PhD in the humanities had uh, too broad uh, a background. Um, uh, if you are still doing coursework, um, if, or if, even if you're not, like if at all possible, take an accounting course. Uh, an arts administration course. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a hardcore finance course, but it, you know something in arts administration. Um, uh, I never did this. I wish I had every day. Um, uh, it will never not be useful. Even if you do get an academic job, you're going to run conferences. You're going to be department chair. You need to know how budgets work. Um, but the important thing is nothing will diminish your credibility in an organization faster than if you look at a budget and like, well, I don't know, what, what does that, what do these numbers mean? And that's what people expect a humanities PhD is going to do when they see a budget. So you have to surprise people and be able to, to I mean, just learn Excel. It's not that hard. Um, um, uh, if you're still in graduate school and you have a chance to do summer work, um, you know, instead of doing the sort of usual research assistant things, work in the private sector. If at all possible, work for a smaller organization rather than a bigger one because you'll have to do more things. Um, uh, when I was working in management consulting, it was an office of three, so I maintained the IT network, I did some of the accounting, I did event planning. You want Anything that lets you do a wider variety of things uh, is, is really useful. Um, it's a huge advantage. Um, and also, a great thing about small businesses is that their staffing needs tend to be really flexible, so there's a pretty good chance that they might be able to offer you an actual job someday down the road. That's what, we're, that's what happened for me. Um, uh, everybody says uh, all the time that the skills that you learn in graduate school in the humanities are skills that transfer easily to the uh, other areas of work, researching deeply, writing clearly, speaking engagingly, but that's only true if you actually do them, so get practice at doing them. Um, management experience is something that every uh, employer wants you to have. I'm you know, as someone who also hires people with PhDs. Um, I, you know, I always want to see people with management experience, but it's something that's hard to get. Um, so it Think about other things that you do that can present as management experience. So do you coach a sports team? 
Have you directed theatrical productions? Um, those are management experiences. So think about what you do um, in, in different ways that can be sort of translated um, to, uh, to an employer in a different, um, a different sector. Um, apply for jobs, um, for different kinds of jobs, not just the academic jobs, um, because the interview processes are very different uh, in the private sector and for nonprofits than they are for academic jobs. Um, and so you want, you want practice at it. Uh, you don't want the first interview you have for that kind of a job to be for the one that you really, really want. Um, you want to have some interviews under your belt. Um, you know, you know, get used to getting told no. It's not a big deal. Um, and maybe you get told yes. And maybe you, it's a job that actually turns out being really interesting. Um, and then just one last thing uh, that I would advise people to do is keep a parallel CV. So um, you have your CV of your publications, your teaching, whatever. Um, so keep a parallel document that translates the skills that you've acquired from doing those things. Um, sort of think of them in terms of competencies. So like what have you been able to do? What have you learned how to do from writing that article or putting together that exhibition or planning that conference um, that you can then sort of so you have a ready-made resume to go uh, that's all set when you want to interview for different kinds of jobs. If, as Paul points out, being able to read and plot a budget can be an organizational superpower, our final speaker introduces another genre of interest, the org chart. David Weimer, the librarian for cartographic collections and learning at the Harvard Map Collection, has found that no one has the perfect background for many jobs. So he advises that you apply broadly and use your research skills to suss out an organization's structure and needs ahead of time. Maybe since you've gotten such great advice already, I'm just going to tell a messy story uh, and hope that that's both helpful and uh, inspiring in its own way. So um, how did I get here? Everyone, when I go to map conferences or like talk to map people and they ask me, they're like, how, do you have a background in maps? I'm like, no, no I don't. Um, and so that's the mess of the story. So I did my PhD in English at Harvard, um, the, did 19th century uh, American literature and religion, did not do that much material culture, but in grad school discovered that that's what I love doing, um, but a little too late for it to be my dissertation. Um, and one summer I needed to make some money to pay my rent, uh, and they were they needed someone to put maps away at the map collection. So I took that job, um, and it was a nice, I would go there in the morning, put maps away, uh, and then go right in the afternoon, and it was a nice routine. And I did that for a couple summers, and the curator retired. Someone else became the head, and they wanted someone to do more teaching. It so happened that at that moment, when they were doing that, uh, when they were doing the search, I was applying to both academic and library jobs, um, just trying to think about a way that I could pay rent and be happy and have a job. And maybe that should be the title of this panel, just jobs. Um, so. Um, I was just really lucky the, because I, they knew me and you know, one of the most important things in an office is that people don't hate each other. Um, and <laughs> if they know that you get along with everyone, um, that puts you way ahead on any list, right? So especially if it's a small office, like you know, there's five to eight people, 
one person, if you hire one person, it turns out they're horrible, it's really bad. Um, and so if they know that you're not horrible, uh, they're much more likely to hire you. Um, Exactly. So, rule one, don't be horrible. Uh, and going to one of the things Jane was saying is that, you know, this job asks for three to five years of experience in kind of map collections and like cartographic collections and land libraries. I had like two and a half summers uh, and like sitting on a desk at a different library at Harvard. Um, and so I wasn't going to apply for it. I was talking to the director at some point, and she said, if you're interested, you should, I know you're applying to other library jobs, you should apply to this job. Never say no when someone <laughs> tells you that you should apply to a job. Um, and, but that one of the things I found in this field in particular is that um, no, one, no one has the right background in maps. And I think this is actually true in a lot of different fields. Like, no one has the perfect background for the job, or very few people do. Um, and it's more often that the kind of more obscure the job is, the more likely it is for them to get a whole bunch of white men that are, feel kind of overconfident about the world. Um, because they're the people that see the CES for 10 years of experience that I don't have. It's fine. I'll apply anyway. Um, but when you're applying a job, just think like an overconfident white man uh, and just apply to everything. Um, <laughs> and so because like what matters is like being in the room and showing you're not horrible and showing you're smart and showing you have all these skills. And the only way you're going to do that is you're sending out resumes and cover letters to everyone. Look at an org chart. Um, you might not know what an org chart is. Uh, an organizational chart uh, is something a corporation has that says uh, who reports to whom. Uh, and that can tell you uh, what they value, um, how things are organized, and also the words they use to describe different jobs. Um, and that is really useful. So I had an interview for a job that I applied to because it was like, you know, collection, like library collections or something. And I was had this phone interview and it became really clear that I didn't want this job and I didn't really know what it was. Um, and I would have had a better idea, I think, if I had looked at an org chart. Um, so you can, and I think one of the things that for any of us that have been on the academic job market, job market puts us way ahead against some people that are coming from other fields, is being so incredibly overprepared for any job material. Uh, like we spend so much time, you know, making these materials for like the six jobs you can apply for, if you're lucky. Um, and other people in other fields, it's not as common. Um, and so having like, being familiar with that kind of obsessive research can really help you in figuring out what an organization's about, what you'd want to do there, um, and what how you fit into what they're what they're looking for. When you're sitting where many of you are, many of you are, and thinking about what's another job I could have that's not a professor, um, I think one of the things you have the opportunity to do in grad school is just like 
meet people and figure out what jobs exist in the world. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't until my fifth, fourth or fifth year in grad school that I knew this job existed. Um, and so I couldn't have really planned for it from the beginning. But being open to the, these paths that you find along the way is, is really important, I think, if you're trying to give yourself more opportunities to, to have a job. Uh, and you all have jobs. Uh, and it's just a matter of figuring out what they are. No matter what path you take, we hope these discussions help you or someone you know find a deeply satisfying one. Now more than ever, the humanities are needed everywhere, but it's on us to have the imagination to see how. I'm Pat Crane, and on behalf of Jane, Sarah, Paul, David, and the C19 podcast team, thank you for listening. Special thanks also to the C19 Executive Committee and to the English Department at NYU for supporting the luncheon where these talks were recorded. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.